0: You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture.
1: One of my favorite things to do is not mess with music stands. There we go is go to the ocean and see the, the ocean at the, on the coast. I, um, we had the privilege, uh, opportunity, to live very close to the ocean in Florida for quite a few years. Uh, we lived in Daytona Beach, Florida, which is, as the name says, right on the beach. Yes, I know. On the west coast it's called the coast. On the east coast it's called the beach. We lived near the beach. It was sandy. The, it was lukewarm water. It was awesome, Okay. One of my favorite things to, to do that I learned to do while I was there was to stand right into the beginning of the surf and to look out over the ocean, uh, and and with all the hotels and the signs and the the chaos of tourists behind me, so I could not see them and out of my peripheral vision, I would just simply gaze out over the ocean and where the and that view was just awesome, very majestic, very calming in many respects I remember that it's just the the cleanness of the horizontal line of the sky meeting the water it was simple and uncluttered and yet at the same time it was complex and vast I could look up into the sky and see the clouds and 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 all the other things that are there in the sky and yet at the same time I knew that there was a universe beyond it I, I couldn't see it but I knew it was there I could look down into the water and see the surface of the water. And at the same, in the same way, I, could, I know that even though I only saw the surface of the water, uh, below it was life and great depth. When we mentally and in faith think about Jesus, especially at this time of year, we can have the same kind of experience. It's a point where God connects with humanity. In one way it's very simple and uncluttered and yet at the same time it's very complex and vast. We understand that Jesus is God and yet we struggle to comprehend his eternal existence and his all-encompassing power. We understand that Jesus to be a man who walked around and ate and slept and all those things that we do. And yet, I don't think we fully appreciate his identification with our frailty and the severity of his suffering on our behalf. We're doing a series called Emmanuel, God with us, for the month of December. Emmanuel, God with us. What does it look like for God to be with us? What does that really mean? There's a word in theology that describes this phenomenon, not just Emmanuel, but it's called incarnation in the flesh and it's a word the word itself is not found in the bible and the scriptures but it it is a word that summarizes in one word a tremendous amount of depth of scriptural truth the incarnation simply means this that jesus christ was fully god and fully man a human being in one person and will be so forever it's it's the incarnation is that jesus christ was fully god and fully human at the same time kind of mind-boggling in, in sometimes incomprehensive but yet that's what clearly the scripture teaches and that's what we're going to look at today how could jesus be fully god and fully man we're going to begin by reading in our passage philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 if you'll stand with me in honor of reading the scripture Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and they will be up on the screen. Please follow along. So, if there
0: is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
1: You may be seated. This passage in Philippians chapter two Describes four stages of the incarnation. Four different aspects. I call them stages of the movement of Jesus becoming man. In the first stage, we see this in verses 5 and 6. In stage 1, Jesus Christ is the eternal existing God. Jesus Christ is the eternally existing God. We see this in 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves. I want you to think this way, which is yours in Christ. So now he's drawing attention to Christ Jesus. He wants us to pay attention to christ that's the central focus of this passage who verse six who though he was in the form god did not account quality with god something to be grasped so he's now saying we want you to think a certain way and and the model the example of that is jesus christ who and now paul starts to describe that jesus that jesus christ and this is the four stages of the incarnation And as Christians, we understand that the Scriptures teach there's one God and only one God. However, that God is a triune God, a trinity, a triunity is words we use, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person fully God. That's, again, like the Incarnation itself. It's one of those things that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. It's one God in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that that God's whole and undivided essence, everything, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully all the same in the God. There, we talked about in, earlier in this fall the six relational characteristics of the Trinity. Back when we started off our series in family, what does it mean for us to be created in the image of God? And that characteristics are that we have roles, And we have responsibilities, communication, submission, unity, and intimacy. And where we got those is because God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have those characteristics. They exist for eternity having roles and responsibilities, having communication among themselves, and submission, the Son yields to the Father, and and have unity and intimacy among themselves. I'm not going to unpack those because we did that earlier in the fall, but it's important to understand that God exists in community. The three persons of the Trinity were involved in the creation of the world. We know that because obviously the Scripture tells us that, but the Scripture also tells us that the three persons of the Trinity were also involved in the redemption, the salvation of that same world. We know they have different roles. The Father, we're told, loved the world and sent his Son into the world to redeem it. The Father did the sending, the Son did the going. We also know that the Son, sent by the Father, came into the world so that he might be saved through him. We also know that the Holy Spirit led and empowered the Son in his life and mission while he was saving the world. This is stage one. Christ the Son, Jesus, we know him now as Jesus, existed eternally as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is the, also called the pre-existent Son. He didn't, he didn't suddenly appear on the scene at the birth of Mary. He had been for eternally existing as part of the triune God. But then Paul takes us to the second stage. In Christ Jesus, God became human. In Christ Jesus, God became human. We see this in verses, particularly verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7 have this mind in use, which is in Christ Jesus, who, now he's describing what Jesus was like, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Back up there in verse 6, we see that though he was in, in the form of God, Jesus preexisted, the preexistent Son entered human history at a specific time in our timeline, in our history. He existed eternally before that, but there's a point where God intersects humanity at a very specific time, the birth of Jesus. The word form there doesn't mean imitation. It means basically something is recognized by the characteristics or qualities. If you see the qualities of something, you go, yep, that's what it is. And if you see Jesus, yep, that's God. We see that he's God. That's what he means by he was in the form of God. And he did not count count the equality with God something to be grasped. The word "grasp" simply means, not like he was reaching for it, like, hey, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. He was basically saying he wasn't hanging on tight to it. He wasn't going to just let it go. He wasn't going to take advantage, hang on to his divinity just for his own advantage. He submitted to the Father. The Father said, I love the world, you go, become one of them so you can save it. The Son said, okay, I'll go. The Son did not say, listen, you want me to become, what, one of them? I created them, why would I become a part of them? You love them so much, you go. He didn't say that. The Son submitted to the Father, and went. That's what he means. He didn't hang on to his divinity. He didn't hang on to being God. And he says he emptied himself. Now, this does not mean that he emptied himself of his divine attributes, that he no longer carried the characteristics of being God. He was always and equally forever God. He never let go of those things. He didn't demonstrate them all the time, but he didn't ever let go of them. What it means that he emptied himself. He emptied himself he didn't dump things out of his life he emptied himself in other words he gave up his superior status and privilege while taking a lowly status position the new international version i think translates this better it says he made himself nothing he purposely intentionally made himself even though he was god nothing And it says, by taking the form of a servant. He's using that word form again. Now he's saying that he not only just became human, but he became a servant. So again, he's recognized by the characteristics. If you see Jesus in life, you'd say, yep, that guy, he's a servant. He's not a king. He's not a ruler. He's not a religious leader. He's not a wise man. He's obviously, the way he acts, the way he lives, he's obviously a servant. Jesus took the form of a servant. The emphasis here is on his role as a human. And then he goes on and says, being, but being born in the likeness of men. This is actually emphasizing the factual reality of being human. He, 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 he came into the world just like every human. Every person comes into the world. He was born. He was a child. He had to grow up. He had to mature. Jesus experienced that just like we do. The word likeness here is that, yeah, he's fully human, but there is something different about him. And we know that something different is that he is the son of God. Now, we know this is God becoming human as the virgin birth, that a virgin, a woman, without knowing a man, gave birth to a son. In our day and age, this is under attack. It's doubted a lot, even among people in the church. There are many a number, I don't want to say many, a number of people who name the name of Christ call themselves Christians who say, no, no, the virgin birth didn't happen because women don't get pregnant that way. They, they need a guy, they need a man. I don't, I'm not going to go into details. You guys can fill in the blanks. And because that doesn't happen, it can't have happened. You know, it would be a miracle. Well, duh, that's the point. It's a miracle. If miracles naturally happened, they wouldn't be miracles, Right? By definition, a miracle has to be something that doesn't naturally, in order of scientific science, uh, happen. But the scripture clearly teaches us that Jesus was born of a virgin. The scripture teaches that this person, Jesus, was conceived in a a woman called Mary, we know her name, and by miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. We see this in Matthew 1, and I'm going to read it to you because it's important that we understand fully that this is exactly what happened. When God intersected humanity, this is how it happened. And, and Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, there's a reason he says that, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being ju- a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But, at, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to for Phil what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then it continues, verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. I want to pause here just for a minute. Why is it important that we stand firm on the virgin birth? Why is it such a big deal that we understand that scripturally, this is what the, the, uh, we understand that scripture clearly teaches and why it's important that we hold firm? Well, first of all, it shows, the virgin birth shows that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Now, way back in Genesis 3, he, he, God promised that through a seed, through the, the offspring of a woman, he would defeat Satan. And Jesus came to do that. Back in Genesis 12, he said, through the offspring of Abraham, he would bless the whole world. And now he's here to do that. And then through 2 Samuel, he said, through the offspring of David, he would establish an everlasting kingdom. And now he's here to do that. He fulfills his promises. There's a second reason that the virgin birth is important, because the virgin birth made possible of uniting the full deity and the full humanity into one person. How this happens, we we'll, may we'll, we'll never know. Even for eternity, will be mind-boggling. How does the divine become human and human become divine? And intermingle into one person. Not two separate people, not bipolar, just one person. Somehow, the divine and human are connected. But we know that Jesus arrived on earth uh, as a baby, and that he, 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 theoretically at least, he could have just showed up fully grown as a man. He could have shown up as an angelic being. Well, not really. If he's going to have full identification as a human, he needs to come in the same way everybody else does, being born. The virgin birth, thirdly, makes it possible that Jesus' true humanity without inheriting sin. Jesus was never sinful. Jesus never committed a sin. He was not, did not have a sinful nature. The scripture goes to great lengths to show us that. We saw this in, in um, um, Matthew, but in Luke, he says that the Holy Spirit, it says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Somehow he's going to protect you. He's going to protect this conception. Therefore, the child who will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Somehow that worked. The Holy Spirit protected the womb. The sin did not get transferred to Jesus. The other scriptures, many other scriptures, tell us that Jesus had no sin throughout his birth and his life and his ministry and his death. Fourthly, it shows us that salvation ultimately comes only through the supernatural work of God. God didn't say, hey guys, get your act together. God didn't say, hey, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, what God said is, I'm going to come, one of you, and I'm going to fix this from your side, not just my side. That there's no one, un, there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He needed a man, a, a mediator, somebody who stands before two, two, two parties in a hostility. And Jesus was uniquely God alone. He understood God's perspective, but he is also human, and he understood the human perspective, and he was the one who could stand between the gap and represent both and resolve the conflict. That's why it's important that the virgin birth uh, be held tightly to. This leads us to the third stage in Christ Jesus. This God-Man, this man who is fully God, was fully obedient. Part of the incarnation wasn't just that He showed up. Here I am, tada! But how did He live His life while He was here? He was obedient. We see this in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And being found in human form, again, recognized characteristics of the qualities of being a human. We see him and he's human. Jesus had a human body. He, he grew. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He got tired. He, he slept. All the things we do, he did. It's interesting, we mentioned it last week when we looked at Isaiah, that in Isaiah 53, it says, describing the coming Messiah, he said, he had no form or majesty that that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. (laughs) What he's basically saying is Jesus was not a very good-looking guy. Jesus was plain, physically, basically unattractive, unimpressive. It's interesting, when, when Israel decided they needed king, and, and, and Samuel says, no, no, you don't need a king. God's your king. No, 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 we need a king because everybody else is a king. And who do they pick out as their king? They picked out Samuel. Why did they pick out Samuel? Well, the, it tells us that Samuel was, um, was a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. What did I say? I stand corrected. Thank you. I appreciate you listening and paying attention. (laughs) Let me me rewind that. The people said to Samuel, we want a king. Samuel says, no you don't, God's your king. And they say, no we want a king because everybody else is. So they then picked Saul because he was a good looking, tall, busk guy. He was not like Jesus. Jesus did not look like Saul. If we had a crowd and we looked out and said, hey, guess what, Jesus here, we would not pick him out. God did not play that card with Jesus, humanly. And we also know that Jesus, scriptures, that sometimes with this divine, this God-man, we're told, for example, in Luke, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and man. Now, how does a God-man do that? Well, the, particularly the human side does that. Jesus had a mind. He had emotions. He was troubled. He was sorrowful. He cried. He marveled. Those are all human emotions that Jesus had. Jesus had a family. We don't talk a lot about his family, but we know that he had a mother, obviously, and lots of siblings and cousins and stuff like that. He has brothers and sisters, cousins, extended family. A number of places in Scripture they're mentioned. Um, One little interesting thing, this is a little speculation, so I own it as speculation, but it's interesting, and and people bring it up periodically, that Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph is not mentioned after uh, Jesus is 12 years old and they go to the temple. He's never mentioned again. Uh, We're not told why he's not mentioned, but when Jesus shows up as an adult, there's no Joseph. And the speculation is that Joseph dies, that Joseph passes away at some point after Jesus is 12 years old and before he's 30. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, if if it's true, that means that Jesus spent at least part of his life what we would know as his teenage years in a single-parent home. He was raised by his mom with his siblings. We also would speculate that Jesus, since he was the oldest son, would then, if his dad passed away, would then take charge of the house and he supported his family with his job. And he oversaw the raising of the household, his siblings. So Jesus was never married, but he did know how to parent. He did know what it means to have a a single uh, single woman as a mother. What's also interesting in the Bible is that there are people in the Bible who recognize Jesus as a man and deny his, uh, his authority or Messiah, his teaching, simply because they know him so well as a man. For example, in Matthew 13... Jesus goes, he's doing his ministry, he shows up back at Nazareth, he's he's going to the synagogue, he's preaching, he's doing miracles. He's he's in full swing. okay. But when the people go and they say, wait a second, time out, my paraphrase, they said, where did this, and this is a quote, okay, now I'm quoting, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? They not because his father was still alive, but because he should have gotten his identity from his father's career, so he should have been a carpenter. He wasn't the, he wasn't the, wasn't the priest's son. He was, he was the carpenter's son. He's blue-collar. What is he doing? That's a paraphrase. <laughs> Back to the quote. Is, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? They name him. And not all his sisters with us. He apparently had at least three, if not more, sisters. That's seven siblings right there. Where did this man get all these things? And we're told that Jesus could not do more miracles and actually left there because of their lack of faith. Why did they not have faith in Jesus? Because they knew him as a man. They knew him as a kid who grew up in their neighborhood. And they said, surely this unimpressive kid can't be the Messiah. And they rejected him. He humbled himself. It's it's important. He humbled himself. He wasn't humbled by somebody else. He didn't cave to pressure. He humbled himself. As a man, he put the interests of others ahead of his own. Jesus, even knowing who he was as the Son of God, chose to intentionally lower himself to serve people. People who would not only not be worthy of him serving, since he's already God, but actually would turn around and reject the service that he does for them. It says also in there, becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedience. Obedience is a characterized his entire life. Obedience characterized Jesus' entire life. We're told that as the son, he submitted to the Heavenly Father. Jesus himself said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In other places, and particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that Jesus never did anything without first hearing from his Father, Heavenly Father. Jesus obeyed his Father all the time and in everything. But Jesus also obeyed earthly people, earthly earthly authorities. Jesus was uh, uh, obedient to human authorities, One of the stories that counts, I think is really significant, is that Jesus, and he was 12, they go up to to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He and his his mother and father, his father's still alive, they go up there and they do the Passover feast for quite a while, and then his parents and their extended family, his family group, heads home back to Nazareth. And his family, his parents are a day in, they forgot to check the car seat apparently, because they're a day into the journey and he's gone. And they go around, and they can't find Jesus. So they head all the way back to Jerusalem, and they spend three days looking for Jesus in Jerusalem. And then when they find him, he's in the temple, and he's discussing the Bible and Scripture and God with the teachers of the law. And they're amazed, like, who is this kid? And his parents show up and say, "Uh, Jesus, uh, we've been looking for you. And this is Jesus' response to them. He says, quote, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus understood, even at 12, who he was as the son of God. Didn't, didn't you know that I had to be here? This is where his presence resides now in, that, in the human world, the temple. Though that's, Of course that's where it's going to be. But then his parents say, and it says they're amazed, like, whoa, okay, we're going home now. And we're told that Jesus, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He obeyed his parents. Even though he knows, in that same passage, knows that I'm God and I'm in my father's business, I will obey my, parent, my earthly parents. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. author of Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, as God, learned obedience from what he suffered. What does that mean? It does not mean that Jesus learned how to, be, how to stop disobeying. He didn't learn obedience means, okay, I'm going to stop disobeying now, I'm going to learn how to obey. That's not what it means. But when Jesus learned through suffering, learned obedience, what it means was that with every new event in his life, from his childhood to his teenage to his adulthood to his ministry, with every new event in his life, with every new temptation, with every new trial, even and especially when it was painful for him, physically, emotionally, he learned to practice obedience in another dimension. And he found new ways to obey the Father. That's what it means that he learned obedience from what he suffered. He didn't want to do those things. He did out of obedience to the Father. Even to the point of death. In his complete obedience, including his death on the cross, Jesus fulfilled why God sent him here perfectly. There's a number of different ways we could talk about this. I'm just going to focus on one, and that is in his obedience he fulfilled completely the righteousness of God perfectly. What do we mean by that? We're told, for example, that for in the death on the cross, when Christ was, when God poured out his wrath on the cross on Christ, is that God, man, absorbing it, not because he sinned, but for the sake of other people's sin, and we're told that for our sake, we benefit from this, the Father made him who knew no, to be sin, I'm going to take all the sin of the world, put it on you, who knew no sin, not because you sinned, Jesus. So why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Christ paid for our sin, that sin was removed, and now we can stand without that debt in front of us. And, and, and also we are told that, and Paul tells in Romans, that as, for one, for as by one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man, Jesus, his obedience then many were made righteous. What does this mean? There's huge, huge implications. Just quite simply this. When Jesus died on the cross, a transaction happened, is available to us. One, in his death, Jesus took the punishment for our unrighteousness, our wrongdoing, our guilt, our shame. He took it upon himself and paid for it. That debt for our unrighteousness, the debt for our unrighteousness can be, is able to be cancelled when we respond to the gospel. The debt is paid. But on the flip side of that, and if that was all it was, that'd be awesome. But Jesus did a lot more. Because he was obedient in his earthly life, he he did a lot more. And that was this. In his obedience, Jesus provided righteousness we needed. The credit of his righteousness is available to be applied to us. So when we stand before sinners in God, we we should be judged and condemned because of our unrighteousness, our wrong, our guilt and shame. Jesus wipes out the guilt and shame. But then, even better he also then takes his perfect obedience and applies it to our lives. So when the Father now, those who have responded to the gospel and repents in faith, when the Father looks upon us, he doesn't just see us guiltless, he sees us righteous in Jesus. We are actually like a king's son, king's children. We have Jesus' righteousness. That's huge. And we're told how we get this how do we get this righteousness paul says that he has his own right a uh, righteousness but not not on his own account that comes from obeying the law but from one that's through faith in christ when we respond to the gospel message that christ died for our sins and we respond to that in repentance saying you know what I'm, i can't do this on my own i need you god and faith i'm going to trust that you're going to keep your promises and the work you did was sufficient to do it when we do that then the guilt and shame is wiped away and the righteousness of Christ is replaced. And for eternity now, we're viewed in that light. We all must respond to the gospel in that way. There's no other way to respond to the benefits of that transaction. But that leads us to the fourth stage. The fourth stage. The exaltation of Christ Jesus and the expectation of his, the expectation of his return. Look at verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Huge amount like the rest of this passage that we could spend a lot of time unpacking. I'm just going to highlight a few things. God has highly exalted him. Beginning of verse 9 is, Therefore, because... He is eternally God. And because he humbled himself and he emptied himself and he became obedient to the point of death, therefore, since he accomplished the mission that he was sent by the Father, therefore, God has exalted him. His, his humble descent into humanity and serving even to the point of death was rewarded by being highly exalted even past where he was before. Jesus humbled himself, but he did not exalt himself. He humbled himself but he did not exalt himself. The Father did that. The distance and the difference between his descent is is exceeded by his exaltation and preeminence, because not only now is he an existence God, but now that he's accomplished the salvation, he's accomplished the work he's done, more glories to the Father and more uh, benefits to us, and it's even better than it was before. It says here, "You bestowed on him the name that is above every name referring, and we aren't going to unpack it, referring to the name of God, Yahweh, that this is now, Jesus has a name, his name is now revered, like the Jews revered the name of Yahweh, he now, his name is now revered as the name of God. And there's no other, the salvation is found in no one else, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, Peter tells us. He says that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, just basically covers it all, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every, knee, every human being who has ever lived will bow their knee to Christ. That's what it says. That we will worship him. Bowing the knee is an act of worship. Confessing him as Lord. Acknowledging Jesus as God and ruler over everything. People can and do now, in response to the gospel, confess Jesus as Lord and do bow their knee to him. But someday, the scripture says, this and other scriptures, everybody will do that. We sometimes present the gospel as if it's one of the many options on the table. Like you want to get physically healthy? Hey, try a vegan diet. Hey, you want to get spiritually healthy? Hey, try Jesus. He might work for you. That's not the way the scripture presents it. This, This is the way history is going. Either we get on and a part of the history at this point or we will be a part of it at the other point and it will not be pleasant at that time. And it says here at the end, to the glory of God the Father, even in his exaltation, even when the Father says, Jesus, I'm exalting you to the heavens, Jesus serves the Father. Notice why. So that when Jesus is exalted, to the glory of God the Father, he even serves the Father and being exalted. Jesus one of the things we sometimes forget about, at least I do, I'll admit, I do, we forget, I forget, sometimes, that Jesus is still a man. He's not gone in the sense of, hey yeah, he, he, he did the body thing and then he disposed of it, now he's, he's back into heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit and he's doing whatever they did preexistent. No, Jesus still has the body. We told you, His flesh, when he rose from the dead and he's walking around with people, he, they say, "Oh, it's a ghost. And they said here touch me see my hands see my feet touch me he ate with them he said I, i'm a bot this is a body i'm real and when he at the end of his his time here on earth he's going he took his disciples he gave them all sorts of instruction and they're talking to him they're on a mountain all of a sudden he just starts floating it sounds like he started ascending up into the sky and they're standing there staring into the sky like whoa okay he didn't see that before and they're so transfixed by him, his physical just going up into the sky, that an angel has to show up and say, hey, hey, pay attention here. He gave you some instructions. It's time. Time to go back and do those things. And then the angel says this, this Jesus, this person you just watched go up, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What's he saying? Jesus will physically, as a human being, will return to earth sometime. And when he does... He won't come simply to show up and, and, and do the things that he's done before. No, he has something different to do then in the second coming. Talked a little bit about it last week. Just as appointed, author of Hebrews says, just as it was appointed for man to die once and after comes the judgment, so Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, is already done to that, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Or as Paul said, we talked about last week, who loved his appearance. Those who are eagerly waiting have a totally different response when Christ returns. And even now, in his exalted state, physically, where is it? Don't know. Physically, he's someplace. And, and, and somehow situated around, visually we're told, around the Father, around the throne. I think those are just images for us to understand so we can under, grasp it. Paul says in, in, in Romans, when you, people are dealing with sin, he says... Who's going to condemn you? Who's going to put you down? Come on, understand who you have in Christ and in the gospel. He says, and then one of the explanations is, Christ Jesus is the one who died, took your sins upon you, and more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So apparently right now, the physical Jesus is with the Father's presence, and he's interceding, he's praying. He's saying, hey, see that Royce character down there? Who keeps messing up is one of mine. He's one of mine. He gets my righteousness. It, that, all that stuff, that's forgiven. And the Father says, Okay, take your word for it, Jesus. It's good to go. Again, my paraphrase. But that's very, very comforting that there is, Jesus is paying attention. And he, we are told, He is interceding. Hey, Father, look at, look at this, this Royce guy. Look at, look at this Red Sea church. See them? They're my people. These four stages of the Incarnation, um, they are the heart of the gospel. No incarnation, no gospel. No good news. That's why it's so important for us. But why did Paul, why did Paul write to the Philippians a detailed description of the Incarnation? This wasn't some just theological debate. He was having. He was writing to a church that was struggling. He wanted to encourage them, so he goes into this detail about the encouragement. Why did Paul write to them this about the incarnation, about the gospel, and of course, then why is it that we're reading it? Well, we're told verses in verses one through five. Let's read verses one through five. So then, if <clears throat> so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in His love, any participation in the Spirit, any. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of the full accord and of one mind. And then the heart of what he's trying to say in verses 3 and 4 here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, and then he describes the Incarnation. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying to you, church, you people who say you believe in Christ, I want you to think about your life in a very specific way. He says, have this mind, have this perspective, have this mental framework among yourselves, each other, how you treat each other. Well, what does that look like? Let me describe it to you. And he describes Jesus and in the Incarnation. Think about your life. Think about your relationships. Well, okay, what what am I supposed to do? Well, this is what you're supposed to do. Do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the first thing. Secondly, let each one, each one of you look not only to your own interests, and there are times where we have to look out for our own interests, but, also, for the interests of others. How can we do this? How, it sounds, it's just very demanding in everything. Don't do it in selfish ambition, you can seek. In humility, count everybody better than ourselves. What does this look like? Come on, Paul, get real. And Paul answered what that looks like. It looks like Jesus. It looks like exactly what Jesus did. Do you want, you want an image? You want a picture? of what this looks like, church, Philippians, and to us, understand what Jesus did in in his humiliation, and his cross, and his exaltation, then you understand what I'm talking about. And Jesus is, is two things for us. Paul's saying Jesus is two things. First of all, Jesus is our example. Jesus is an example. A number of places in the scripture we're told, follow the example of Jesus. Paul even had the audacity to say, follow my example as I follow Christ. Did Jesus function in this frame of mind? Did he do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility counted others more significant than himself? Yep. Did he look not only to his own interests, because he had some, he had a mission, but also to the interests of others? Yes. Jesus intentionally humbled himself and served other people, providing them with tremendous benefit, but also at an extreme cost to himself. The difference between, and we, when we wrestle with this and we say, okay, that's Jesus, and we, 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 we struggle with putting other people first and serving other people. Oh, yes, we do. But the difference between us serving other people and God becoming one of us and serving us it is like the difference between this cup of water and the Pacific Ocean. Is, is there really a, that close of a difference? No. What Jesus did was the, was the, the Pacific Ocean. What we struggle with day to day is a cup of water. I'm working with an analogy here. Jesus was our example, but more than that, Jesus is our enabler. Jesus is our enabler. As Christians, because of who who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross, we are freed from guilt and shame, and now we are forgiven. We have a new identity in Christ. We are new creations. We are righteous in himself. We often say this with those four gospel questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? Therefore, what are we to do? We're supposed to treat other people differently because of who we are in Christ. We can serve other people wholeheartedly and sacrificially, not saying it's easy, because it's not, because in Christ we are accepted, secure, and significant. In Christ, I get my acceptance to God from him. I get my security from him. I get my significance from him. Therefore, I don't, I don't need it from other people. I don't need to earn it from other people. I can actually serve other people and then not appreciate what I'm doing, they can actually be hostile to me, and that's okay, as far as it goes, that's okay because I don't have to get my acceptance from them, my security from them, significance, because it's found in Christ. Therefore, we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition, but to serve others. I shared last week a line from my personal manifesto, some people push back on the idea of having a manifesto, like I'm trying to take over the world, you know, like the Communist manifesto or the humanist manifesto. I'm not trying to take over the world, I'm just trying to take over my world.? Okay, Go big or go home. And I'm trying to figure a practical way. My manifesto is a short number of sayings that I wrestle with, both in saying, both in understanding how I'm going to approach my weak. My meetings, the stuff I'm going to do, but also when I face with a circumstance, a si- situation that makes me uncomfortable, I don't want to do it. I, I pull out my th- mentally pull out my manifesto and I think through those lines. I shared one of them with you last week. I want to share with another one with you t- this week. This is one that I've had for quite a while. It c- resurfaces in my life periodically, and this past year has resurfaced again. And this is the line. It's going to go up here. Give more than you have to, take less than you can. Give more than you have to take less than you can. What does it mean to be humble yourself and serve others? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. What does it mean to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility can it count others more significant than yourselves? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. How do I not only look for my own interests, but the interests of others? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. You have a coworker or a boss who's driving you crazy how do you respond you give more than you have to you take less than you can you have family spouse children in-laws you fill in the blank who are demanding and frustrating what do you do give more than you have to take less than you can How should we handle the various conflicts that sprout in our life? We spent six weeks talking about how to handle everyday conflict. When you're at that point, I know I'm supposed to deal with this. I don't like dealing with this. We're back at this conflict again. What do you do? What do you do? How do you make that decision? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. Sometimes participating in a Sunday gathering or home community, it feels, you know, unfulfilling. Sometimes the interaction with people is just downright disappointing. And at the minimum, they are both inconvenient. So what do we do when we're at that point of decision? Do I go or not go? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. We live in a culture that is in many ways contradictory to Christian beliefs and values. How can we live in and even engage that culture in whatever aspect the Lord has called you to do? Give more than you have to. Take less than you can. When Paul says that we are to not do things out of selfishness, but to serve others, not just to worry about only our own, uh, our own needs, but also the interests of others, what Paul is saying is give more than you have to, take less than you can. Why? Why are we called to give more than we have to and take less than we can? Why? Because that's the way Jesus che- treats each one of us. He went first. He modeled the way. He enables us. That's why he's called us to do that. We also have another tangible opportunity to serve, and that is through, like, Jamie and, and Dave, and next week we're going to hear from somebody else on these serving these, the Africa uh, ministries, Sunrise Ministries, Voice of Victory Ministries, and Africa New Life. We pick these not just because it's the fashionable thing to do at Christmas, to, to do some ministry, just, just throw some, forgive me, some token money this way, but it's an, it's an opportunity for us to live incarnationally. It's an opportunity for us to give more than we have to and take less than we can. When we give, all, somebody from this part of Red Sea has actually gone to those places in Africa and has experienced it. That's why we pick those, those ministries. It's not just some foreign thing. Nobody called us up and said, hey, you want to do this? No, we don't, we don't do it that way. We want our people invested in those places. And all three of these ministries, we have people who tend to be ongoing, invested in those places. It's an opportunity for us to, to serve people who are very different from us, who live far away from us, and most likely will never reciprocate of anything we ever do to them. And yet the Lord has called us to give more than we have to, take less than we can. If you want to know more about those ministries, on the back of the bulletin board, there's more about those ministries, I want to encourage you. That's just one of many ways we can follow the example of Christ, and through the enable of Christ, serve those who need it, and we can do so with humility. Each week, we end our messages by pointing to communion, intentionally so. Whatever we say up here, we always want to drive home that we end it with the gospel. The reason we're up here sharing is because of the gospel. The reason you're here is because of the gospel. And a big part of the communion isn't just the bread and wine, but Jesus himself, on the night he particularly, last night night he said, hey, I'm I'm starting something I want you to do all the time. It's not insignificant that he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body. He wanted us to remember his physicalness, that he was here, that he's real, that he's the God-man. And his blood is the covenant of his love. That is the divine part of God made these covenants from the very beginning through the end. So Jesus in in, in communion says, my body and my blood, the the human and the divine are mingled. I want you to remember that every week. And that's why we take communion every week. He didn't say every week. He said every time you get together. Okay, this is it. Just to be clear. It's taking communion can be like that ocean view I started with. In one way, it's extremely simple and uncluttered. In another way, it's tremendously complex and vast. I'm going to invite you, if you have responded to the Gospel, at some point, not even just here, but some point, in repentance and faith, and said, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, we want to encourage you to take communion. As you do this today, I want to remind you of this, the incarnation that you're celebrating not just that this guy was here and died but God became man for your benefit let's pray our heavenly father I thank you so much for texts that and authors like Paul and author of Hebrews and others who delve deeply into things and, and though they explain in great detail sometimes it uh, is hard for us to wrap our mind around I pray that even right now when it comes to you being fully God and fully man, though we try to wrap our mind around it, may we see the simplicity and and yet the vastness of that in the same way. May we celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. And as we come to the communion table, may we celebrate what we are and what we are called to do to serve those around us because you have served us so greatly. We thank you in your precious name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.